Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads, A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 179, brand one, In a Storm of Swords. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. New year, new book. Same book series. <laughs> Same POV. Part of me was like, is it new year, new book? And I'm like, I guess I guess we went to Storm a couple times last year, but not yet this year. Yeah, not yet. it's a new book for brand, so technically it counts. I'm glad it's a clean cut into the new year with this book, right? That we can just start a new one. Clash was getting kind of sad. I don't know if I was ready to carry that kind of baggage into the new year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we run into A Storm of Swords, where we've been so many times before, we have returned. But first up, housekeeping. Last month, we put out a Patreon bonus episode for patrons in the Stranger Tier and Above. This episode was on The Ice Dragon by George R.R. Martin, a novelette, if you will. You can get more bonus episodes on A Song of Ice and Fire. That's right, more. And other topics, other shows, other movies, other series over at our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. But the Stranger tier isn't the only tier with benefits. It is not. There are more benefits for you if you would like to join our Patreon in the Thunder tier and above. That's $10 and up. And... Most of all, it gets you access to our special Patreon Discord, where there is fun to be had. Oh yes, always fun, always shenanigans, sometimes we play Jackbox games. However, every month we do a brunch slash happy hour. This month's will be announced in the coming weeks, so keep your eyes peeled for that information. But it's where we log on and chat about our days, weeks, and talk about different, you know, media we're watching or reading, and play games and get to know you's you know it's kind of a fun time we have a fun time at happy hour slash brunch brunch slash happy hour is one of the highlights of every single month and yeah there's also a lot of other fun channels and in february something very exciting is starting on our discord yeah some of our friends on discord will be putting together weekly rewatches where uh, you come having had watched, having watched the series three, His Dark Materials, the final series that we are wrapping up right now covering as well on the podcast. You'll see that in your feeds if you're subscribed to us. So our friends over at the Discord are doing these weekly hangs starting in February on Saturdays in February to discuss an episode once a week. Once a week. And... By the time that this episode comes out publicly, either we are finishing up, um, just about to release our final episode on the His Dark Materials television series, or it will have just come out. Keep an eye out on your feeds, and you you can see when it comes out by subscribing and checking out our social media at twitter.com slash girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N, or subscribing to us on any of the various platforms where we host our podcast, which will go down that list later later on in this episode and by that i mean the end <laughs> it's always a fun outro you should always listen to those you never know yeah it's different every time we you know we don't pre-record that that's part of the fun that's part of the magic of girls gone canon what platforms they will say we if you do the same thing over and over again <gasps> expecting a different result it's called insanity i just want you all to know but, that but there is a different result every single time so it's mm. not insanity in fact it is the most sane thing that we do, perhaps. Actually, it might be. 
Well, we don't have any emails of note to start off a Storm of Swords brand. However, I expect that will change as we go through because, and not to boast too much, but you know, a Storm of Swords brand is like, it's starting to get peak brand in here. Yeah. I mean, every single one is a banger. We're going to get the good storytelling, the littles. <sighs> We're going to get brand traversing the north in a Storm of Swords. And then we get to go back to a double dot to a dance with dragons and we get brand's Jedi training. So. I'm winning. I, world's biggest brand fan, am winning right now. Yeah, and also one of your favorite chapters of like All Storm slash maybe the whole series is in this one. That's a Storm of Swords brand three. That's coming up very soon in just two chapters if you are counting. So if you've got takes that you want to get in before then, you know, you want to talk to Chloe about her favorite chapter, send us some of those emails and tweets of note now. Yeah, brand two and three are great. I love the hiding in the tumble-down tower, making their way to Queen's Crown. Making our way to Queen's Ground. Walking slow, mm-hmm. we don't know mm-hmm. where the wall is. So back to some of the less sane things that we do, Eliana. We ended on Bran in A Clash of Kings. It's the last chapter of the book. So our lightning round won't cover Clash of Kings, we are past that, but it will cover everything we've missed up till now in A Storm of Swords. It will. So let's get started. We got our prologue. Chet is getting got by the Beyond the Wall patriarchy. Jamie won. Jamie is sent back to King's Landing with Brienne as his guard. Catelyn won. Catelyn's crimes leave her sending ravens for long-lost allies. Arya won. Arya travels faster when she dreams through the eyes of her wolf, who is hungry. Oh. Like, like the wolf. Like the Get wolf. <laughs> Tyrion won. Tyrion wishes to be rewarded for his bravery in battle, but Papa says no. Davos won. Davos washes ashore from the battle at the Blackwater. Sansa won. Sansa makes a new friend in King's Landing. More like frenemy. Best frenemy or girlfriends, depending on what mm. books you've read. Frenemies to lovers. Uh, John won. Speaking of frenemies to lovers, John convinces Mance Raider he's on their side. Do you know where they put the bastard? That was for you, Eliana. Thank you. That you was good. That. that was good. I was glad with that. Kisses. Daenerys won. Speaking of kisses, <laughs> Jorah advises Danny to fly to Astapor to hire the Unsullied Soldiers. I do not want those kisses. I don't want <laughs> New them. New Year, worse us. Worse us. Oh, God. Worse Jorah. Every For year. Real. Every year, Jorah gets worse. That leads us into Bran 1, where Jojen has taught Bran all that he can. They move north toward the Three-Eyed Crow. Bran spends a little too much time in summer. In summer. In his dreams, he... Climbs higher in the forest, watching the birds, feeling the stone, and a man sound calling to him. We have a line. The smells were a song around him, a song that filled the good green world. I love this because you can feel this, right? Have you ever just like stepped out into some sort of wildlife area that smells alive, trees and shit, you know, in the woods or something? Yeah. 
Literally trees and shit, probably, though. Trees and shit. That's what you're smelling. And and the other vegetation. Almost any brand chapter, you point to the front of it, the opening prose. George, you're such a nut. You're crazy (laughs) for this one, George. It's always good. All of it. This isn't so much detail. The the wolf fight and every little twinkle of light coming through the trees or darkness resting. Uh, The wolf's wood. It's wonderful and creepy. And this one especially, right? We've already pointed out in previous chapters, each one starting more and more with Bran constantly in summer as it begins. And as you said, like the imagery is just fantastic in this one, but also like that the smells were a song around him, a song that filled the good green world. That feels really significant in a series, again, called A Song of Ice and Fire. And I don't know what especially it means Especially for a possible green seer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the way that some of the stuff that's happening in Brian's chapters will be told kind of like a song later on. Wow, a story in a book. What? <laughs> this one, the one we're reading. This is the story? Oh my god. <laughs> Prince of the Wolfswood, he reminds himself, looking down upon the wolves running below. His cousins, he thinks, remembering when he too had a wolf pack, remembering their scents. Big sad. Yeah, interesting. This part where he's called a prince of the wolfswood, partially because he's a direwolf, right, in his size, and the freedom that comes with being a prince as a wolf, contrasted with how Bran feels really restricted by being a prince of Winterfell in this chapter, and he even questions, he's like, what does it even mean to be a prince of Winterfell? What fucking Winterfell, right? And that more and more becomes a part of Bran's story, but we see it also kind of becoming a part of other characters' stories, right? Like Daenerys' story becomes more and more about the constraints of ruling, of being a queen, as she sees these challenges at Slaver's Bay, and then that, you know, dives into even more detail in dance. But I don't know why there's also something about calling this, like, woodland animal a prince of the forest that reminds me a little of Bambi. Very different animal, but, like, they call... Like that one deer, and then later on they call Bambi, right? The Prince of the Forest? Yeah, Il Bambino. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, yeah, that probably is what the name's about, huh? Being a baby deer. Interesting. Ah, uh, so wait, who's, who's Flowers? You know, who's Flower? Who's Thumper? Who's... Oh, interesting. Cast it. Cast it, bitch. Uh, flower's the skunk, right? Yeah. I don't know. Thumper's probably, I guess, Rickon, just saying crazy stuff. Oh, Flower could be Hodor. Aw, Hodor. Think on it. Workshop it a little. We'll come back to that someday. I know we will. It'll be really important. I mean, Bambi's mom dies just like Catelyn Stark. Uh, Like Bran says, where will they go? Their mother's dead. Next, we have a passage. His angry brother with the hot green eyes was near, the prince felt, though he had not seen him for many hunts. Yet with every sun that set, he grew more distant, and he had been the last. The others were far scattered, like leaves blown by the wild wind. Sometimes he could sense them, though, as if they were still with him, only hidden from his sight by a boulder or a stand of trees. He could not smell them, nor hear their howls by night. Yet he felt their presence at his back, all but the sister they had lost. His tail drooped when he remembered her. Four now, not five. Four and one more. The white who has no voice. So the woods and... Other parts of the land belonged to them, but their sister had left the wilds to walk in the halls of Manrock and couldn't get out. Very sad. 
sad sounds of stark hours just gotta be bummed you know lady lady yeah lady <sighs> all right that was good i had to get that out of me for just a moment <laughs> the themes are really strong in these opening chapters of storm and i always like how George kind of formats the front of his story to get you back into each POV, but also kind of linking them together emotionally with the things they're experiencing. And there's just this significant weight and feeling of finding out who you are, knowing who you are, trying to understand your past, your present, your future that we're seeing with Danny, John, Sansa, Bran, and Arya. And identity, right? Identity and perception come across so strong as the themes for the children in the start of the story. It makes a really great framing device what George has done in this paragraph or this passage here, reminding you where each wolf is at this part of the story. And also in comparing hearing the wolves, recognizing where the wolves are, recognizing still being connected to those wolves, bringing that analogy to us, to the reader, so that we realize where we are in the mind of the wolf is nice. I think it's just a really well done device. Yeah, and as you said, it gives you kind of a quick status check. This is how many of them there are, or there was, right? It's kind of significant because when you think about it, by the end of this book, there will be one less wolf because Rob will be dead. So knowing that they all have that connection seems really important. I thought it was really interesting the way they describe Lady being gone and, you know, had left the wilds to walk in the halls of Manrock. Right, and being unable to like escape it. And I, I was trying to figure out this Manrock thing. We've heard the wolves talk about it before in like previous brand chapters and how that rock is like dead. Manrock is dead, right? Not alive with song, I guess. And I don't know, I guess I it doesn't mean like Winterfell's castle and the graves that are there. Like, is that what it's talking about? Like la- ladies' bones are trapped there the way that the wolves were when they were trying to also escape Winterfell a little. There's something interesting in the way it's used to also describe I I mean to me when I hear man rock now to me it just means like rock that has been formed or touched or made by man or like utilized Mm. by man so different than boulders out in the wolf's wood but for example a castle like that to me is what they're describing as man rock and the south is very man made Right. When you really think about it, it's like, wow, the South is full of super manufactured bullcrap. So I think it's obviously that departure from nature. I'm guessing the Lich Yard in Winterfell, I mean, we don't get a great description of it, but I'm guessing it's covered in that granite of Winterfell. Well, what you're saying about it representing the South, right, and Sansa, because obviously the wolves represent their respective Stark sibling is really yeah. interesting if it is about because Sansa is trapped in King's Landing at and this time. And then Lady's soul might be trapped in with her. Yeah, exactly. Because she still dreams and sees Lady's spirit, as we know. Stop reminding me. So God. I think that's really interesting, that idea that like Lady's mm-hmm. spirit might still be there with Sansa. I feel like that's what's being implied. I do. Like that her spirit is too far away, still in the south, and never came home. I mean, she's killed there and Sansa's still there. That's crazy to think. Yeah, well, if they're both two and one, right? Even though mm-hmm. we never saw Sansa like act as a warg, we know from So Speak Martin that all of them are to some different extent, right? And so, rather than like, I don't, I don't think we see like necessarily Lady manifest as a wolf or take over like Sansa's thoughts. That's not what I'm saying, but like, Mm-mm. if if you could have a second life in that 
animal or something? Like, is that possible? And that's explored a little, right? Like, the fandom has definitely explored that with Rob, right? With the idea of maybe he warged into his wolf when he died. Yes, and definitely. of course, we're waiting on that reveal with John. Mm-hmm. So if it works that way, why doesn't it work the opposite way? Yeah. And as you all know, um, I do believe Rob did skin change into Grey Wind and, you know, died twice. How exciting. How great for them. His soul's probably going to be stuck in the South, too. Maybe that's part of why Bran could be a Southern King, too, out of respect mm. to the Stark ghosts in the South. Lyanna, too, you know? Mm-hmm. Bran would dance with his ghosts. The wind shifts, and he smells new smells. Prey. He runs, almost like flying toward the dying deer, surrounded by eight smaller wolves. The pack is already beginning to eat, with the tail left for last. Summer sneaks up, some of the pack retreats, but not the head male and female. Yeah, Summer is bigger, he snarls, and he fights off two of them, and then goes off to fight the leader, who is older, right? But, when it comes to that fight, he does have the pack, right? So some of them will, like, nip at him or whatever. He does tear out the throat of one attacker, and after that, the others kind of keep their distance more. He then defeats the old wolf into submission and is hungry. He's ready to go take a bite out of this prey he's fought for when suddenly he hears Hodor. And we have this line of, None of them had heard it. It was a queer wind that blew only in his ears. He buried his jaws in the deer's belly and tore off a mouthful of flesh. Hodor. Hodor. No, he thought. No, I won't. It was a boy's thought, not a dire wolf's. Ugh, once more ripped from his dreams, which are reality, lost between boy and wolf, you see him losing himself in becoming this all-seeing alpha? Huh? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, that was very interesting to me that he immediately was the alpha of the forest with the other wolves, kind of exerting himself on these other wolves as their alpha. Jojen seems to want Bran to, you know, kill the boy, kill the wolf in a way, that Bran needs to take over completely and be in control of the wolf and himself. But we're watching Bran struggle to keep to himself, giving in to the wolf and that two-in-one mentality, right? Like, two souls with one. Bran is very much letting the wolf be in control. There's also something that, I don't know, in the way that this is described, George goes into such detail with how many wolves there are and what's going on with them, And it does make me wonder if it's foreshadowing for Bran's ending in the story, Mm. if he does become a king, defeating all the wolves and coming out on top. He even, in dance, he defeats the pack with Varamyr, too. So, I don't know. Eight eight wolves especially stood out to me. The seven seven wolves would be seven kingdoms, so eight could Mm. be Bran's new one. Yeah. Well, there are eight now, right? Or nine? I think there's actually technically nine now or or there were something right because the seven kingdoms lines are drawn differently than the current the modern day ones so it is it is very possible returning to eight then right because like the crownlands the crownlands were not a, a kingdom at that time the riverlands were the land of rivers and isles so then that split between the iron islands and the riverlands mm-hmm. interesting good call on the wolves numbers the woods begin to darken until a man's grin appears and Waltz. Bran doesn't want to eat, but Hodor keeps waking him gently, well, I mean, as gentle as Hodor can be, with all of his strength, and Bran shouts, no, and for Hodor to leave off, stopping him. So now they are in the vault of an ancient watchtower, abandoned thousands of years ago, and Bran has named it Tumbledown Tower, 
and it was found by Mira. I kind of feel like, is this something that later on George was like, I really like the way that sounds. Did like that eventually he recycled it into the names for the Tumbletons or something? I like the way it sounds too, though. It just has a nice little bit of um, alliteracy going on there, right? Alliteration going on tumble there. Not alliteracy. Tumbling down. Tumble, tumble, tumbleton. Uh, the, I, I am curious if this will come back in any way, like if it'll get mm. a real name someday. Maybe it'll get raised as a special place that Bran, a king, once stayed. Yeah. I mean, Bran 3, I love Bran 2 and I love Bran 3, like so equally, but Bran 3 is the chapter with all the Jaehaerys and Alysanne stuff about the new gift and because mm-hmm. of the Queen's Crown Tower. So it just makes me think maybe this tower didn't exist before they went there, or maybe it was another little hold that was raised. Yeah, it'd be interesting to find out. I love all these lonely towers just randomly out here in the north. Yeah, same, same. Really great world building. There's a lot of like world building in these first few chapters of George reestablishing you know, what's going on in the story. So Jojen warns Bran that he was gone for too long once more. Mira will be back soon with supper, but Bran is tired of frogs. He wanted to eat the deer. He had won it, after all. Jojen asks if Bran had marked the trees by clawing the bark, like he had said, but Bran is embarrassed because he forgot, like how he forgot to catch a rabbit and bring it back for them, or push rocks in a line. Things that Bran thinks, of course, are stupid. He says he forgot, and Jojen says, you always forget. When he's a wolf, these things don't seem important, especially when he can just run. For one... I understand why Jojen wants Bran to do these things. This would be extremely, like, useful. Like, imagine you could just be eating a rabbit. Very great compared to what's going on. He could have brought that deer all the way back, you know? That would have been really awesome for everyone here. But beyond it being very practical if Bran could mark places, Jojen is, of course, testing to see if Bran can retain his sense of self while being in summer. And what we're seeing through these is that Bryn is still very young and immature. He's using his gifts for his own personal joy and benefit rather than for the greater good. They talk quite a bit about people's different gifts in this chapter, but it is understandable that Bryn does that because of his age and also especially what he's trying to escape, his own body. That's kind of what prompts him to make the choices that he does at the end of this chapter, which, I mean, this chapter is a very big first step towards learning to think beyond his immediate wants, right? He's not quite beyond thinking of just his own desires and well-being yet. That comes later on in his journey, probably, but he's nine. Yeah, that's always the big part with Bran for me is, like, whenever I start to really critique him, I'm like, he's fucking nine. He's a kid. He's a nine-year-old kid that doesn't even understand all of his own needs yet, let alone others. That's true. He doesn't even understand he's got to eat. That's his own need. So much so that he can't even fathom that they have to eat, too. He's never had to provide like this. It's interesting. Yeah, but his way of providing before was just like, I don't know, send that salmon to that person I like. Send those berries to that person I like. Cooks? Cooks? Yeah. Do my bidding. Servants? Yeah, I mean, he's a spoiled rich kid. I mean, like, at the Harvest Feast, right? He's like, I don't know, send this to those people. That's cool. You know, it comes back to what Illyrio says about Aegon, right? Mm. Oh, he's been raised for this. You know, he, uh, some princes are born and told they're to rule, but he's been raised for it. And Bran is the opposite. I mean, he's actually going to learn on this trip what it means to be hungry, what it means to be on the run, not unlike what Danny had to go through at a young age as well and is still kind of going through. And you talk about him 
learning what it means to be hungry and also how he doesn't really want to feed himself, right? He wants to eat what the wolf eats, right? And and his lack of wanting to sustain his own body that very much feels a bit like depression, which is understandable for what what this uh, child has gone through and the other things he will go through. Yay. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of that laced into this chapter of his depression. I think we'll come across it a couple more times. We have this little exchange between Bran and Jojen of, I was a prince, Jojen. I was the prince of the woods. You are a prince. You remember, don't you? Just tell me who you are. You know. Jojen was his friend and his teacher, but sometimes Bran just wanted to hit him. I want you to say the words. Tell me who you are. Bran, he said sullenly. Brand the Broken. Brandon Stark. The Cripple Boy. The Prince of Winterfell. Of Winterfell burned and tumbled, its people scattered and slain. The glass gardens were smashed and hot water gushed from the cracked walls to steam beneath the sun. How can you be the prince of some place you might never see again? And who is Summer? My direwolf. Prince of the Green. Brand the Boy and Summer the Wolf. You are two, then. Two and one. I thought this was just like an interesting world building thing regarding, you know, A, reminding us of who Bran is at this time, but also how you're supposed to really be approaching skin changing and warging. It, some of this like two and one, right? Like it, it feels paradoxical, reminds me a little bit of that c- Catholic mystery of faith, that Holy Trinity stuff, which makes sense considering that George was raised Catholic. And there's something in this that reminds me of Arya and Sirio's training as well, in the stillness and the flow of everything. Uh, for a water dancer, right? A water dancer has to be a part of everything mm. all at once and also able to separate themselves everything into two once, and Chloe. one. Everything all at once. Uh, two and one. Mystery of faith indeed. I mean, Arya has to kind of learn that through Sirio, and he pushes her in a similar way in the first book, right? I want you to say the words. Tell me who you are. Like, you have to say it. You have to live it. You have to believe it. So this does feel like a little bit of that Yoda training coming in. And that's fascinating because Arya's later training is her learning to, when someone says, who are you? She's supposed to answer, not herself. Yes. These kids are freaks. These stark that's all, kids that's are all Chloe's got. She's like, I, I gotta take a step back for a second. And- <laughs> I just gotta think for a second. I'm like, man, all these kids are fucked up. <laughs> you reads are included as well. Don't think yeah. you're disincluded, you cute little homeschoolers. I love ya. Honestly, all of them. You think about the Walters get a mention in this chapter. Those kids definitely They're fucked up too. Very- I'm trying to think if there's a normal kid. Hot pie. And even that. He yeah. just wants to bake. Which is fine. That's great. He could start an Instagram. Chojin's behavior is making Bran kind of uncomfortable. He hates when he gets like this, especially because Jojin's the one who wanted Bran to skin change and warg, and now Jojin's always interrupting and calling him back. Jojin implores him. He's like, you need to remember or the wolf will consume you. Bran's like, so what's so bad about that? I don't I don't know what the problem is, officer. I like being summer more than I like being myself. I have legs. I can eat whatever I want. I can bully people. Like, it's great. It's a good time. He thinks, what good is it to be a skin changer if you can't wear the skin you like? Hmm. It's a good question. Like, what is the point of having this thing if you can't use, like, enjoy it? 
It's also a, I think that this is quite a bit of foreshadowing for the taboos of skin changing and eventually brand wielding power over over Hodor, right? Like remembering that, yeah, what good is it if you can't wear the skin you like, but also that there's, there are boundaries to whose skin you can take. You can't just like and take any of them. And then also in regards to remembering who he is or the wolf will consume him. Reminds me a little of like why Bran and Theon's stories are so intertwined because remember who you are is such a big part of Theon's story. Theon was consumed, right? He let power consume him. And honestly, Bran having to learn to be hungry and to learn like a real human to eat, not just like a wolf boy, that is really powerful and important because it's going to kind of come to be you know, a, a a thing up to bat for him. It's going to come to a really bad point that he has to learn to use his power not for himself. Right now he's using it because he's a little boy selfishly, right? He's using it to feel. He's using it to be able to actually have mobility and to be able to kind of just like, I don't know, feel like he actually has something in this world while that feels good and doing things because they feel good is fun. It's also not always, you know, a balanced way to live your life and other people will suffer because of that if you continue to do things just because it feels good to you. So he has to learn to be a human with actual sympathies and empathies and understanding. And yeah, it's. Uh, it, it, I hope that the Hodor situation, man, it's going to be a bummer for all. I don't know. It's going to be a bummer for all. It will be a bummer for all. It really Especially will. Hodor. Yeah. Uh, it's very true. And yeah, you're talking about him having to learn about these basic needs and wants. I mean, a lot of people are about to be hungry. A lot of people are already hungry in the story. But anyway, even more. Winter is coming. Jojen asks if Bran will remember to mark the tree, any tree, <laughs> next time. Bran says he will. He could do it now, thinking he'd eat the deer. But Jojen's against this and thinks Bran should stay and eat with his human mouth instead. Well played. A ward can't live off what the beast eats. Bran thinks, well, how would you know? Bran thought resentfully. You've never been a warg. You don't know what it's like. And the stress that both Jojen and Mira put on this sort of knowledge and that emphasis kind of makes me wonder, like, yeah, we assume that, oh, they probably just know because they're so much closer to all of this magic and just know it, like, through, you know, passed down knowledge. But I kind of have this tinfoil of, like, what if Jojen and Mira find this so important because it's something that they saw happen to their father, Howland, who we kind of all assume has some sort of first men magical ability? Uh, and I, I just think it'd be an interesting metaphor also when you think about, I don't know, addiction like in parents and like children witnessing that. Especially with the metaphor that exists in what we're seeing already with Bran's despondency and his condition physically escaping from his depression and thinking back to the Tower of Joy. And not just that, but everything that Howland had gone through before that. I mean, Howland going to the Isle of Faces, you know, and whatever he learned at the Isle of Faces, that couldn't have been light. Everything he went through with Ned, with Lyanna, could not have been light. And, you know, just a sidebar about Howland and Ashara Dane really quickly. <laughs> just because we're in a storm yeah, of swords. Absolutely. Just a sidebar about Howland and Ashara Dane. It's something that I really... Like, it, it makes me really sad to think of, yes, it's a it's a great pairing if that's how they got to escape, but to think of all the sadness that exists there, because thinking of Mira and Jojen growing up, and their mom probably also had some pretty severe depression, 
you know, after her brother died for this war, and she left everything behind to be with her despondent, vision-having husband. Assuming this is, like, even about, you know, if this is, like, about Helen, but, like, yeah, I mean, Ashara's got a lot of probably similar, similar sadness and uh, and grief to Ned, right? And you're talking about how, like, Howland was part of Robert's Rebellion. He was, right? I mean, Ned uh, says he wouldn't have survived if not for Howland, so clearly they both uh, lost a lot of people, survived a lot of carnage together, and if we see Ned having all of this PTSD, it's not, like, a far leap to assume that the person that he was on this journey with, like, probably also does. So the Vietnam War is, like, a defining point for George's life and his own, like, philosophies towards war. There, there's something about this that, you know, is even reminiscent of some of, like, the Vietnam War vets, right? Like, and, and their PTSD. And unfortunately, some of them did end up falling into addiction because that's how some of them were treated uh, in, when it came to injuries, etc. And you come back and there's no there's no nets for you, right? Not Well, not the, those kinds of nets that, like, that Mira uses. No social safety nets. They're already outcasts. Yeah. Cranog men are. They were isolated. We hadn't seen them up in Winterfell for a while. So, like, did Ned just never visit his friend? Did his friend never visit him in all that time? I don't know. How could you visit one another? And we're going to have to talk about this more in the next chapter for sure, because True. we're going to get a lot of that Robert's Rebellion. We're just getting into Storm of Swords brand. <laughs> it's a Storm of Swords brand, baby, because there's so much Robert's Rebellion PTSD to talk about and go through and to examine how it would have affected them. And because Howland is the the person that is the most mysterious on our pages, right? He's one of the very most mysterious characters. We don't get to see this part of the POV. So it's kind of fun to glean anything you can from the interactions with Mira and Jojen. It is. One day we'll get it. Absolutely. Look under your chair. Maybe it's right now. <laughs> Hodor is jumping and hitting his head and shouting, and he's interrupted as Mira enters. He happily greets her. Neither Jojen nor Mira are very tall, as Cranog men are quite small. Bran envies her walking and her grace. She fights using the three-pronged frog spear in one hand and a woven net in the other. Yes, Mira has brought back two small trout and six frogs for them to eat. Bran is hungry, but not for frogs. Well, you can't be picky, okay? And he remembers that the Walder said that eating frogs turns your teeth green and makes you grow moss under your arms. Bran kind of wonders if the Walders died, but then again he didn't see their bodies, though there were a lot of bodies at Winterfell. This is interesting to think about where he'll be in the Winds of Winter versus a Storm of Swords, because not yet, right? They're, they're still alive. One of them won't be. I wonder if he'll be able to see, I mean, so we see him in the background in dance, right? That he and Bloodraven, our, him and Bloodraven are just out there, like, touching through the Weirwood, whispering to Theon, right? Weirwoods are crying at him. There's all this, you know, he, he's definitely up to some shit in dance that we see him do in the background, but we don't get from his POV. His chapters in dance are super isolated, brands are. You could just see him peeking through in certain places, so I wonder if by dance and if by the winds of winter, Bran will be able to see what's happening and know about that Walder on Walder crimes, the crimes of Walders. Uh, well, just because like he seems to have more control in dance now that he's with his, you know, Sith Lord Bloodraven. So winds of winter trajectory wise, it'll be a positive trending. Like he'll be super powerful, able to just see through everything. 
feel like Walder on Walder crimes, like that should be, I don't know, trademarked or something. Like that should be, that's gonna ha- there's gonna be more than just those Walders, like having Walder and Walder crimes. There's a lot of Walders to crime against one another. The many crimes of Walder. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that's a, that's a good point. He might think about them or like see it and it could be a way for him to like show his growth the story can show his growth like if he has compassion like dang they were they were huge pricks but uh i kind of feel bad for them it's not really fair fair i mean look where they came from they came from a world of walder on walder crimes i mean walder on walder crimes it all goes back to the walders before us whoa well we don't want to judge them by the sins of their walders you know Mira invites Bran to help clean the catch. She always knows how to make him smile, and nothing scares or angers her, except for Jojen. I hear this is what families are like. Um, Jojen wears all green. <laughs> His eyes are the color of moss, and he has green dreams that all come true. Except for dreaming that Bran died because he didn't. Well, I mean, kind of, right? Hodor gets wood for a fire, while Bran and Mira clean. They cook in Mira's helm, and they make a stew of the these frogs with the onions, and it's not bad. It sounds delicious to me. Honestly, I'm in a very yeah. stew mode right now. I'm like, everything is stew. Frogs everything just taste like soup. chicken, you know? They just taste like skinnier chicken. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A little chewier. Yeah. They're not bad at all. And in a soup or in a stew, amazing. Yeah. And there's that helm again, that possible Night of the Laughing Tree helm. Smart use of it. I, this is... The only time we've seen a helm used to cook in in the series. Interesting. I looked it up. I was really scaling through the series to find out if there was any other use of helm for cooking. And I thought that was brilliant. Well done. It is a good idea. It is a good idea. I wonder if the other helms are like too decorative or like have too many holes or something. Because I can't imagine trying to cook in like the mountain's helm with its like tiny little fist. That would be really hard. It would take forever to heat up. I've watched a lot of Alton Brown um, Cutthroat Kitchen. It's a very <laughs> favorite show of mine, and that's what you this sounds like to me. You do watch that quite a bit. I remember. It's so good. I really highly recommend it to any of you. It's like if you ever had an evil madman just hosting kitchen games, that's what it is. Alton Brown is a fucking madman, and he's amazing. And he'll just, like, show up. It'll be all these chefs, and they have they each have a certain amount of money they can spend. And he'll show up at the front and be like, here's a way to fuck your neighbor over while cooking. And it'll be shit like, they have to be on a rotating moat, and they can only cook their food whenever the moat rotates them to oh the my oven. God. Or some shit. Like, or, like, you have to prep all of your stuff in a medieval suit. Like, he will do things like that. So that's what this reminds me of. Absolutely. I see it. Cutthroat Kitchen with Mira Reed. I mean, a lot of Westeros does seem like a cutthroat kitchen, you know? A lot of throats being cut. In kitchens, no less. No more. Jojen says they have to move on the next day, not because they're unsafe, but because this isn't where they're meant to be. I just thought it was interesting that everyone was kind of more willing to go and leave this place if Jojen had said yes, it was from a green dream. But it's just Jojen talking about, like, no, we have to go to this other destination that I would like for us to go to. It's very reminiscent of Joseph Campbell's discussions in his Hero with a Thousand Faces book about the hero's journey. And he kind of says there's something about, and we're going to talk about accepting the call, but about the refusal of the call and accepting the call. And he kind of references that no matter what, the character may refuse the call, but the call will always be there. So 
the story could go nowhere, right? Like they might just stay where they are and refuse the call, but things around them will start to change and start to align in ways that push the character to go to the call. So even if your character is stranded and going nowhere, the call will start transforming his surroundings until he has to go to the call. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of interesting when thinking about them moving to their next destination that like, it's not because they're unsafe, but it's that they have to, they're supposed to, the world is changing around them, pushing them in that direction. Yeah. And the call has kind of been there for at least like a whole book already. Right. And mm-hmm. a and lot it's of been ignored. clash. Yeah. Was that, and as you said, it's been ignored and everything keeps changing to, to nudge brand towards there. Yes. This is the big nudge. <laughs> It, yeah, it's the one where Bran finally kind of makes that decision. We'll get there. Part of it is because they're like, who knows how long this tower is going to be safe, right? An army could just take them unaware. And Bran says, well, I mean, but what if that army is Rob's army, eh? Checkmate. Checkmate, atheist. And since he has to come back and chase the Iron Men away anyway, and Jojen reminds Bran that, I mean, Maester Lewin did not discuss Rob when he talked about what to do next. He talked about the threats that are surrounding Winterfell, such as the Iron Men on the Stony Shore, Ramsay to the east, Deepwood Mott has fallen, also Clay Kerwin and Leobald Tallart are dead. Yeah, the North is torn apart. War everywhere, he said, each man against his neighbor. This is just the the beginning of the storm of swords, right? This is well laid from the very front that the betrayal of Roose Bolton is coming. Yes, it is. It is. It's a big part of this book, in fact. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, this war of neighbors against neighbors, Walders against Walders, it's only going to get worse before it gets better because resources are going to become scarce, right? We're going to see a lot of people just fighting amongst themselves. Mira says they've discussed this before. She gets Jojen, wants to go to the Three-Eyed Crow, but the wall's far, and they have no mounts. And then, of course, there's a Lord of the Rings reference. If we were eagles, we might fly, said Jojen sharply, but we have no wings, no more than we have horses. After Jojen needles about if they'll steal them or not, Mira suggests they could buy or trade for horses, but Jojen says they'd be identified, which is probably true. So long as Bran remains dead, he is safe. Alive, he becomes prey for those who want him dead for good and true. This line reminds me a little of how Bran had been talking about being safe in the darkness. And we also see that, you know, when when he's peering out from Blood Raven's cave. And we've talked a little bit about that already and what that might mean for his story going forward. But we do see this idea of being dead and that being safe for people like play out differently amongst all the different Starks, right? Arya's kind of relatively safe because people were assuming that she was dead until, you know, that opened a vacuum for someone else to take that place. And then Jane was very much not safe. She, alive as Arya, is prey for those who want to use her. Or Sansa being hunted by the end of this book, right? Everyone knows she's not dead and they're all like, hmm, we would like her for regicide. And then end of dance john is literally dead and i don't know is being undead like when he comes back technically dead but also not is that safe i don't know we'll find out great framing for all of these starklings and rob very alive and unsafe i'm worried about that boy (laughs) if i tell you the truth about it i'm real worried worried for him (sighs) jojen reminds them bran needs a better teacher than he is that they go to the north one step at a time 
Mira reminds him how long it took to get from Greywater Watch to Winterfell, and the risks of not knowing the place or how they're even going to find the Three-Eyed Crow. Yeah, we actually haven't heard much about Mira and Jojen's journey coming from the Neck to Winterfell until like this moment. They don't really discuss it, so now I am kind of wondering how hard was it for them, considering it was off-page for all the rest of us? I'm curious, especially time-wise, when you think... What, we start a Game of Thrones and it's how long does it take for Robert to get all the way to the north? I'd say it's probably cut that trip, what, in half? In half, or is it, like, even longer? Because they, I don't know, did they have mounts or not? I mean, they probably did, right? Maybe, but but interesting. It was just them, right? Did they come with anyone else besides the two of them? I don't remember. I don't think so. Mm -mm. They're just announced by the Winterfell guards. So maybe a bad journey. Yeah. I would hope they had mounts. I would be very concerned. I'm worried now. They probably bickered. I don't a know lot. that they did. I don't know. Oh yeah. I'd imagine Lots that they're bickering. dead. Yeah, we'd give them mounts, but like are mounts not popular? I would imagine that they might not be super popular. They might not have that much money, right? Because it seems pretty difficult to traverse the bogs, you know, yeah. with, <laughs> with a horse. Like that doesn't actually seem useful. Environmentally speaking, that's kinda what I'm thinking. Yeah. Shit. I just see Mira arriving on Lizard Lion back. You know, that saddled is up. Cool. That that'd be great. Would be very cool. So Jojen suggests that the three-eyed crow could then find them. Would be the one to find them when when they hear a wolf. But turns out the wolf that's calling is not Summer. And Bran is like, why do we even listen to Jojen? He's so dumb. He can't even tell a wolf how from a dire wolf one. Also, he's like not a prince, nor he's is he strong, and he's not even a good hunter. Why are we letting him decide everything? Here's where the wolf bleeds through. Right when has Bran? been disinvolved in what he thinks a good leader of a group is. This is such an interesting change where last book Bran spent it reluctantly being like, fine, I'll be there for all of the political talks and I guess I have to rule and be a lord, but I don't want to. But all this time he's been spending in summer seems to be making him apply rules for men in different worlds, right? Because this sounds more like a very visceral, physical alpha and beta wolf feeling that's developing and like pack mentality that's developing for Bran from spending time in summer. And it makes me wonder if this will give him ambition and thirst to lead, right? If King Bran is endgame, the path for him to actually have that ambition and want to lead is being laid down. Yeah. And he's going to probably have to find different reasons to want to be king than just being the strongest and the biggest, right? Because we see what that means, right? Being the strong prince, uh, being a prince at all or a good hunter you get things mm-hmm. like the blackfire rebellion you get people who or or magor right or even the dothraki system for deciding who rules like thinking about it in the way that wolves rule is is purely based on physical power and not just you know all the all the other things that kind of matter like i don't know diplomacy legal thinking <laughs> caring about people whatever Stewardship. So Bran suggests, you know what, let's just go back to the idea of stealing horses, alright? We can steal horses and then ride to Last Hearth. Or, if not a horse, we'll just steal a boat and go to a White Harbor, where Lord Manderley is, because he was pretty friendly and he wanted to go to war for us, eh? Eh? And that way, it won't matter if he's alive. Hodor likes this plan, but no one else does, even though Bran is the Stark here and a prince. I have to say... Brand suggesting it here, not taking them to White Harbor was one of the smartest things in the world between Osha and Lewin in his final bleeding moments. 
This shows Bran's very new understanding in politics, right? He isn't quite apt to why going to Wyman would be a poor decision. He's out here suggesting they Grand Theft Auto a boat. Grand Theft, what is that called? I don't, you What's can, the you boat can still version? have an auto boat, right? You can still have automobile boats. Yep. Grand Theft Auto applies to boats, motor vehicles, RVs, etc. So Grand Theft Auto, Bran is out here ready to just steal a boat. How are you for going to steal a boat? Is my question, Bran. How are you going to do that? Can we just play this out in our heads for a moment? And then he, you know, he finds kindness in Wyman. But it's funny because, as we know later, Wyman is scheming the whole time. This book, he was scheming a lot last book, too. And while he may keep you safe, it is a different prison than you would have been in before in Winterfell. Yeah, you are frustrated that you can't do what you want with your life. Well, imagine being Wyman's pawn. And no. Yeah, that what's great is that we do get answers to all these different outcomes of what could have happened if Bran went to these places, right, in a Dawada, and what those paths would have looked like with, you know, at Last Hearth with the Umbers or with the Manderleys. But it is, to me, still meaningful that part of why Bran was drawn to Lord Manderley was because Lord Manderley was the one who showed Bran the least amount of pity. He didn't have as much pity in his eyes for Bran's situation as all the other lords. So there's there's an aspect of respect that is still there that Bran was drawn to. And I think that's still because, you know, Lord Manderley knows what it is to be underestimated and for people to reduce your ability as a leader and functionally just as a person to your body. Yeah, absolutely. And Thankfully, if they had left now and gotten there, they also would have faced trouble because Frey's would be planted there very soon. Yep. Walter on Walter Crimes, but then it just becomes Manderley on Walter Crimes. <laughs> Which are the best kind of crimes, personally. <laughs> Delicious. What? Hodor keeps Hodoring, saying his name in different ways. Sometimes he's quiet, though. Bran suggests Hodor train with the swords, so he does. They had taken three of the tomb swords. Bran had Uncle Brandon's, Mira with Lord Rickard's, and Hodor with an older iron dole and rusted over the centuries sword that he loves to swing around. Bran asks Jojen more about this teacher they're going to because he thought Jojen was his teacher. Jojen worries that Bran is bending more to summer than otherwise, but Bran insists he'll be better when he's older, and we get this exchange. Even Florian the Fool and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight weren't great knights when they were nine. That is true, and a wise thing to say, if the days were still growing longer, but they aren't. You are a summer child, I know. Tell me the words of House Stark. Winter is coming. Just saying it made Bran feel cold. Jojen gave a solemn nod. I dreamed of a winged wolf bound to earth by chains of stone and came to Winterfell to free him. The chains are off you now, yet still you do not fly. Again, quite a bit of this passage is sort of in that language of songs, right? The green dreams aren't too dissimilar from that when it comes to that symbolism. but And it ties to those legends of Florian the Fool and Aemon the Dragon Knight, which Florian the Fool, that, that plays quite a bit of a, a role in this book with Sansa's story and also a reminder of age, right? Again, Bran's just a youngling. Aww. A little youngling. And it makes me wonder if Aemon the Dragon Knight had dragon dreams, too. Hmm. Honestly, maybe. Probably. 
A lot of I'm them in did. camp like most of them did now, so. Yeah. Points at a Targaryen. You had them too. You had them too. <laughs> at least like 25%, you know, enough of them, which like a significantly high mm-hmm. amount. Yeah. Bran says that Jojen ought to teach him as a green seer, but Jojen reminds him he's not a green seer. Green seers don't just dream, they're also wargs, and they can skin change any beast. They can see through the weirwoods and see the truth that lies beneath the world. So. This is some great setup for telling us kind of a bit of the rules of what makes someone a three-eyed crow versus just any kind of other, you know, green seer or green dreamer or skin changer, right? Varamir did not have green dreams, but he was a warg in that he did have a skin-changed wolf, and also he could skin-change multiple other creatures. And then we find out that Varamir learns what the truth that lies beneath the world is and that happens upon his death right when he goes into his second life so we've speculated upon this before but it seems like there is sort of a truth that lies beneath the world that only comes to people in death which might explain why those near-death experiences again are prerequisites for being a three-eyed crow heir to being a three-eyed crow maybe a three-eyed hatchling if you will and what blood raven is looking for there's the bitter irony too that bran is like Jojen, what do you mean? You can't teach me more. And Jojen's like, you're a green seer, idiot. You're the one that could teach me shit someday. Yeah, he's like, he you're has the such a bigger one. capacity. Yeah, he's the chosen one. You Jojen's were the like, chosen one, Anakin. Oh, wait, sorry. Branakin. <laughs> Branakin. You know, the, the passage specifically mentions, too, that the green seers would have power over all creatures, whether they fly, crawl, Etc. Etc. And went through some of those actions, which stood out to me. I'm like dragon, dragon, mm, mm-hmm, dragon, mm-hmm. ice dragon. I I think that it would be very cool. I know that that's like a popular theory as well. So I'm also struck by that theme of perception. Right, sees the truth that lies beneath the world. All of the Starks are kind of doing that. John in the last John chapter, his lying to Mance after having to kill one of his mentors to kind of succeed to the next part of his little journey as a mini hero. The thousand faces of this story that are all heroes and John's one of them. But, you know, he had to be able to see through lies and through to the truth of things. And he's a little farther in this cycle, I would say, than Bran on a kind of mastering warging and Bran's probably going to finesse it a little more, but John's getting there. John is starting to be able to go in and out of those a little bit. Soon he's just only going to be in. He's going to have a hard time getting out. And, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he doesn't really skin change into other animals, but I mean, if you've got a direwolf, like, you can kind of settle, I think. You can kind of just rest mm-hmm. on your laurels with that one a little. And I guess part of that is because John's got a stronger sense of self. He's older. Right, and also yep. he's not trying to escape his body in the way that Bran is, and he's got. I think friends. he's also had. He has some friends, yeah. I also think he has. I mean, he's already come to blows and faced the paranormal, so he mm-hmm. knows it's real in some aspects that Bran is still coping and grappling with. He's starting to get it that this is very fucking real, but John's come face to face with it already. Yeah, absolutely. Jojen explains to Bran that gods give people varied gifts. They are not strong hunters like Mira, but Jojen can dream, unlike her, and that Bran can be more with a good teacher. This is just a nice little lesson, alright? It feels important for, in general, Bran's coming-of-age story, anyone's coming-of-age story, right? 
He's resentful of the gifts that he doesn't have. He covets Hodor's instead of learning to accept himself. Yeah, when he needs to just embrace the gift that he has right now and really hone it and make it shine. Mm -hmm. And not just that, but I don't know. I'm just worried about this whole entire good teacher that they keep saying. With a good teacher, a good teacher, I'm just worried about that influence and that it might not be a positive influence. I don't know. Yeah, he might be like a very skilled teacher, but is he a good teacher or is he a bad teacher? Like onions, Eliana, <laughs> onions, onions, layers, layers. Absolutely, it's not just good or bad. Yeah, yeah, that's for I real. Guess, I mean, I guess that's the truth of Blood Raven too, in some aspects. Or, yeah, he more or less tells them that, like when they show up. You know, he's like, "I had a brother I loved, one I hated." I got layers. Sister I wanted to fuck. Yeah. Over and over again. Yeah. Normal shit. Normal. Uh, <laughs> gossip girl. Wait. So, too much about the First Men and Children of the Forest knowledge has actually been forgotten, which is part of why they need to go find another teacher. And Mira comes around and says that they would be safe here until the war ends, but then Brand wouldn't learn. Any of the other places that Bran suggested, they could all easily be taken. So she puts it to Bran. She says, the risk is ultimately yours, Bran, and so is the gift. So what do you choose? And I just love the way that Mira frames this question and that Bran does have a choice here. Or at least Mira clears the way to create that choice for him. And... Yes, now Bran has to reason through this difficult decision, which is exactly what someone would have to do if they were a lord, you know, or or a prince, or, I don't know, even a king, any sort of leader, as you were talking about earlier. And that Mira realizes that what Bran has is both a gift and a sacrifice. It's for him to do whatever he wants. Uh, kind of like, I guess, Jamie at the end of, uh, what is it, this book, right? Whatever he chose, mm -hmm. whatever he chose, uh, tying... Into, I mean, his, his storyline's very tied into brands. If you really think about it, you don't have to think hard. Mira represents that belief in a choice, whereas her brother Jojen, right, feels that they must find Bran a teacher. He feels much more resigned to fate and also these ideas of sacrifice, which makes sense because Jojen's dreams make him feel that the ink is dry, right? He isn't fighting anything. He says they always come true. And he has been sort of indoctrinated by these dreams to feel that he must make a sacrifice of himself. So maybe he feels that everyone else should just fucking do it too. Yeah, they're very polarizing, right? They have very staunch opinions that Mira still very firmly sits at the side of it's important and it means something, which means you should be able to make a choice or to change it. And Jojen, of course, is the opposite of that. I like that you've pulled that out of Jojen's sacrifice as well, that he already has come to terms with it. He's already done his grieving and he's already moved on, so it's time for them to do so as well. Did we really cover that Jamie chapter? I don't remember it. <laughs> it was a long time ago now, if you think about it, which is crazy. Hmm. New Year. New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. Hmm. Hmm. What? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever he chose. Well, Whatever he chose. Like, block that out. <sighs> Blacked out for a minute there, sorry. But he's like, my choice is to not, I, I do not see it. Well, of course, Mira says, whatever you chose, we will follow you, our prince. And we get this final exchange. It felt important to 
We kept it all. You mean, you'll do what I say? Truly? Truly, my prince. So consider well. Bran tried to think it through. The way his father might have. The Greyjohn's uncles, Hother Horsebane, and Moore's Crowfood were fierce men. But he thought they would be loyal. And the Karstarks, them too. Carhold was a strong castle, father always said. We would be safe with the Umbers or the Karstarks. Or they could go south to fat Lord Manderley. At Winterfell, he'd laughed a lot and never seemed to look at Bran with so much pity as the other lords. Castle Kerwin was closer than White Harbor, but Maester Lewin had said Clay Kerwin was dead. <coughs> the Umbers and the Karstarks and the Manderleys may all be dead as well, he realized, and he would be if he was caught by the Iron Men or the Bastard of Bolton. If they stayed here, hidden down beneath Tumbledown Tower, no one would find them. He would stay alive. And crippled. Bran realized he was crying. Stupid baby, he thought at himself. No matter where he went, to Carhold or White Harbor or Greywater Watch, he'd be a cripple when he got there. He balled his hands into fists. I want to fly. Please, take me to the crow. Ah, that's my boy. Do you know how many times a day I call myself a stupid baby and ball my hands into fists? I love Bran. I'm such a Bran moon. My god. <laughs> I don't know why it makes me think now of, this is just because it plays on the radio, radio all the time, that Taylor Swift song. She's like, sometimes it feels like everybody is a stupid baby. Not stupid, sorry. Sexy, sexy baby. baby. Sexy yep, baby. Sexy very baby. differently. Yeah, very different. But anyway, it makes me think of that. But it, I get that. I get that. It makes me think of Sailor Moon, of Yuzagi-chan. Uh, which, in which way? Stupid crybaby. Oh, yeah, that is Also me. Also personally me. It's even, like, actually one of her superpowers. Like, when she cries, she, like, can send out, like, the shroo, 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 like, sonar yes. things. Yes. Yeah. The sonar things, yeah. Well, Bran is just that powerful, too. I love that. I love, you know, in our His Dark Materials coverage, I think we've talked a lot about that loss of innocence as well, and there's something in the recent, the final season that came out that reminds me of it that you and I were talking about offline of just that idea of growing up is truly having to make the choices that suck, the choices you don't want to do, the choices that don't make you feel good. And when you don't make those choices, your life goes in a different direction, usually a downward direction, sometimes a downward spiral. And here, Bran considered and weighed every single option, and he went through the many phases of grieving it right there, right? Refusal, rejection, upset, crying, and then finally he went, ugh. I have to do this. I have to go do this thing because there are no other options for me. In the beginning of Storm, all of our Starks are kind of quartered without options. Sansa has to choose the least bad choice and play along in a court of roses where thorns still surround her. Jon is lying to Mance about his motives immediately ever having to kill Arthur Dane. I mean, Corrin Halfhand, <laughs> his BFF, slash new dad. Arya and the boys are on the road with nothing but the horses, hungry, cold. She's warging into Nymeria in her sleep, her one escape, and all of them are kind of pitted to this place where it's fly or die with Rob. Rob is about to be in his own rock in a hard place, Rob in a hard place with Jane. The hard place being his dick. Whoa! Or the crag, I Whoa. guess, but... Whoa. Dang. And you're talking about this idea of, like, you know, you make a choice and you have to live with it, right? And having to make one, and... Something that Emily in Paris just taught me, 
in the latest season is that not making a choice. Sorry, I, I broke everyone, but not making a choice is also, it's still a choice, right? I learned that in the Tudors today as well. Oh my god! Look in at season us. two of the Tudors, wow. This, season three of Emily in Paris. Not I'm not there yet. It's still a choice. I haven't binged it yet. That's this weekend for mm-hmm. me, hopefully. That's what I did over the holidays with my mother. So, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Accepting the call. That is what this finally is, right? We've had several long chapters of rejecting the call, but finally the call has shown up at the doorstep and forced Bran to answer it. In Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, there's this idea of... The walls that are protecting you also imprisoning you, which we saw with Bran, right? We saw that his life in Winterfell, he felt like he was in a jail cell. And there's this quote from Joseph Campbell that the subject loses the power of significant affirmative action and becomes a victim to be saved when they are trapped within those walls. And I think that this last passage, the end of it, it's so powerful because that is the moment Bran makes himself not a victim to be saved. Right, That is the moment he gets to take a moment in his life and choose, even if it's really not a choice in the end, right? Like it is the the choice, capital T, the choice he needs to make. But he got to make it for himself. Part of why he makes it, right? you're you're talking about this is this is really great, what you're saying of like when you don't take that action, you're not a proactive character being a victim to be saved. And that's what Brandon is wrestling with in himself. He's hated this whole time. Part of why he likes Manderly is Manderly does not look at him with pity, right? He hates that he has to be carried around. He hates that he can't make these decisions and that he's not the hero. He's the damsel in distress, I guess, if you will, in, in these stories. And so there's that gendered aspect too. But he realizes finally, like, it doesn't matter. Anywhere that I go, everyone's still going to think I'm a cripple. And it ties back to that speech that Tyrion gives John that he doesn't really give Bran. He he doesn't get the chance to really impart that same message onto him, but like, make it your armor and no one can use it against you, right? So if Bran's going to be this anyway, he might as well decide and take action. And a lot of this chapter is about that, right? George R. R. Martin setting the stage for what this book is and what Bran's not only literal outside adventure journey is going to be, right? Because what's important is, as you said, right, he answers the call and that the journey starts because of Bran. But he's also, to an extent, reminding us where where Bran left off in the previous chapter at the end of Clash, right? The crossing of the threshold when it comes to that hero's journey, in case you forgot during the two-year wait between Clash and Storm. I would not forget anything yeah. during a two-year wait. <laughs> Glossing over that. Uh, and it's crazy to think if he's developed this much by dance, I'm sure that George will take advantage of not necessarily a gap, like the original five-year gap, but I'm sure that he will take advantage of using time as a kind of more spaced-out topic, not necessarily a day-to-day approach in The Winds of Winter, because I feel like he's going to want to mature some of these characters a little more. And book five, we don't get a lot of insight from internal Bran as much as we do in these first three books, in my opinion, Mm. in dance. So I'm curious to see what we get back of Bran in The Winds of Winter and how far he's kind of progressed since this 
because you're already seeing him as a much different boy than the boy we met in A Game of Thrones. Yeah, and a big part of that is, like, what, Bran only has three chapters in dance compared to all these other books. Absolutely. And it's, it's intentional. I mean, mm -hmm. to me, that's very intentional in A Dance with Dragons that George wants to kind of isolate him and pull him back from us, not unlike what we'll see with John for probably the first half of T-Wow. Hmm. Interesting. Well, there you go. The journey begins. Again. Yeah. Lots to ponder before next week with our uh, hero's journey truly popping off. I'm excited. I'm excited for my couple of favorite chapters coming up here with Tourney at Heron Hall talk next week. And of course, what chapter three we have Jaharis and Alisan at Queen's Crown. And hey, I think we might even have a special surprise for you on the fourth chapter. So Ooh, keep your ears peeled. A surprise! Well, you can keep up with all of those developments by following us on social media. That's twitter.com slash girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N. Again, in case you forgot it from the start of the episode, or you can send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, and don't be refusing this call. Oh. Make sure that you subscribe to us on a podcast platform that is near and dear to your ears and heart. Whether that is iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Acast, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Audible, Amazon Podcasts, and many, many more. See, look at that. Different. Not insane. In fact, very sane of us to do. Somewhere that you can definitely always find us, though, is on Patreon, where all of these episodes go up, but also all of our bonus episodes that come out once a month for patrons in the Stranger Tier and above. That's $5 and up. Our most recent Patreon episode is about George's novelette, The Ice Dragon. Yeah, we'll let you know very soon what we're doing for next month. This month? This month. January. Oh my god, this year. Yes, you'll hear more about what we're doing this year soon. And if you want to support us on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon even further, and you pledge to be a patron in the Thunder tier and above, that's $10 and up, you get access to our Discord server, where we do some events. Every month we have a brunch slash happy hour that'll be announced soon for date for our patrons. And we are doing some weekly episode discussions coming up in February on the His Dark Materials Series 3, the final season. Final season. Yes. As always, I'm depressed about His Dark Materials <laughs> and Bran. I mean, I'm Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Also sad. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye.